what came out of that was the talk of the day one ready veterinarian. And what I think about that term is how can we make students competent and confident? And I would add comfortable as well. What does it look like for a new veterinarian to be ready for practice day one? And who exactly is helping to make it happen? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and the awesome curriculum creator I talked to today is Dr. Ryan Engler, who started work at University of Arizona's new veterinary school, February 2020. That's right, just before the pandemic. Was the first year crazy for the first year students? Sure. And crazier still, but maybe shouldn't be, are Ryan's ideas about the importance of professional skills and the way she thinks better communication can help new doctors in the exam room and in contract negotiations. But first, Ryan, who the heck are you? Okay, well, Ryan, I have known you for a few years as a speaker and a writer and a thinker, and you've written a bunch of textbooks, but maybe for the audience, could you give people kind of the 30,000 foot view for what your career looks like? Because I think it's an interesting one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So currently, I have two roles. I'm director of veterinary skills development at the University of Arizona College of Veterinary Medicine. And I'm also an associate professor here. So here at the college, I wear two hats every day. I'm responsible for designing, building and launching the clinical skills part of the curriculum, as well as the professional skills uh, side of the curriculum, which really runs the entire first two years of a three-year program. But if I were to kind of rewind that path for you, uh, <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Maryland. I went to vet school at Cornell University. I graduated in 2008 with my doctor of veterinary medicine degree. I went into private practice as an associate veterinarian, first in Maryland and then in upstate New York. While I was in the upstate New York region, I had the opportunity to go back to Cornell as what they called then a practitioner in residence, which meant that one day a week, I was able to go into their community practice service, which is kind of like their primary care service to help with students. And really, it was my giving back to my alma mater. I worked for free. Somehow they convinced me to do that one day a week for four years. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, so you were still practicing normally at yeah. your regular private practice. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I worked my normal, well, what's supposed to be 40 hours a week, which was really like 80 <laughs> hours a week. I just want to point, you did air quotes for that 40 hours a week, air quotes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, so yes, it was my day off. I was supposed to sleep in, but I went to Cornell and I loved working with the students. It was absolutely like my favorite day of the entire week. Even though I think I started at 4 a.m., I got up, drove at 5, got there, and I think I left Ithaca, New York at like 10 or 11 at night and then drove home. So it probably wasn't the most work-life balance friendly, but it taught me that I wanted a career in academia. And that's where I started to look into what opportunities there were. In 2014, I became founding faculty at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. That's where I discovered my love of Arizona. I was there with Midwestern for about three and a half years, then moved to Kansas to build out their clinical skills program. And now I'm back here. I've been back here in Tucson. Well, actually, Oro Valley is where our work headquarters are since February 2020. So I got back here right before everything shut down from the pandemic. And 
We opened our doors in August 2020 to our amazing new class, our inaugural class of 2023. Okay, I want to ask, so that is perfect. That's a high-level look at your career. I am curious about this thing. We keep talking about clinical skills, and you also mentioned professional skills. Do you have an overarching idea for how you hope veterinarians are differently or better trained to hit their practices running or to have longer careers in the work you do in veterinary skills development how does that enter in thinking about the either their first hit, their first shock to the system when they actually get their first job, and then their career? How do those thoughts play into how you're crafting their curriculum? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it, it's funny because I don't feel so old, but it, 2008 was a long time ago when I graduated. And when I graduated, there was not any talk of the day one ready veterinarian. Most of the training, and that is meaning beyond just Cornell, where I graduated. Most of the training at that time was very didactic, lecture-based. At that time, we didn't have PowerPoints. So you did the old-fashioned, write your notes <laughs> Right. You read books. And basically, I had a four-year program, which was typical. So the first three years were heavy-duty lecture. And then suddenly, you had a fourth clinical year. And that was where you were introduced to patients and had different experiences. So you had a year of that, but in all honesty, it was more of you following and shadowing cases. You've made very little decisions on your own. And so when I then graduated in May 2008, I honestly did not feel ready. And and most of my colleagues at Cornell were in the same boat. We were petrified on graduation day and we're like, wait, I have to do this. And do I know what I'm doing? How I describe it to my students now is that I was very book smart but not street smart. And so what I mean by that is at the end of my time at Cornell, I could recite what was on page 285 of Edinger's textbook of internal medicine. (laughs) It was a great fact, you know, if you were going to a cocktail party, but it didn't help me know what do I do when a little puppy comes in and is tremoring and is six weeks old and a chihuahua, right? I would just freeze because I didn't know how to put what I knew from the books into actual real life practice. And so the AVMA, which is our overriding body, has really worked hard to do surveys, to reach out to graduates like myself throughout our country. And also there are global endeavors as well to say, what can we do to prepare students to be better? And what came out of those talks, some of which I was a part of, many I was not, because at that time I was knee deep in actual, you know, practice life. Right. But what came out of that was the talk of the day one ready veterinarian. And what I think about that term is how can we make students competent and confident? And I would add comfortable as well. And so where clinical skills really comes into play is teaching students what skills do you need each and every day? And so as an example, it sounds very basic, but for our students in the very first week of fall semester year one in clinical skills lab, We have an entire three-hour lab where students rotate through stations, and all the stations are about observation skills or palpation skills. And so one station is the water colors of urine, right? And so I have (laughs) kind of like a, a fake chemist. I make all the little things up. And so they have 10 different test tubes, everything from clear to peach to yellow to pink to red to brown. 
and we start getting them and I think, how would you describe the color? Because you're going to need to do that in practice when you're doing a urinalysis. Or how do we assess fecal consistency? So we have fake poop and fake vomit and fake everything in clinical <laughs> lab. And students start learning, okay, and then we have to teach them how to feel. And sometimes in vet medicine, we see and we feel at the same time. But a lot of times we're feeling blindly. And so I have a station where there are pennies and dimes in a bag that's not see-through. And students have to reach in and they have to find how many dimes are with all the pennies. So I have to learn how do I figure out what is a dime versus a penny. And those sound like very basic skills, but they can then translate that to say two years later or one year later when they're doing a rectal exam. And now they can't use their eyes and they have to feel structure and texture and shape and size. And so that's where the clinical skills element comes in. Mm -hmm. And I would say for professional skills, it's a medley of a, a number of different topics, everything from ethics and the legality of medical documentation to assumption making about clients and working through the assumptions, working through bias, implicit and explicit, and then a huge emphasis on communication. And when I was in vet school, no one ever sat down and talked with us about how do you talk to a client? It wasn't until I got to year three clinics where suddenly I had to take a history from a client for the very first time that I started to work through, well, what do I say to them? How do I talk to them? And I fell on my face a lot of times before I picked myself back up, right? And so now I work and have a designed a 30 simulation program where students work with standardized clients or actors. And now they have practice time in a safe, supportive environment where they're able to make mistakes, say the wrong thing, and not harm the client or the patient. What about, so I'll just play the cheesiest, most obvious devil's advocate. Look, by taking time to feel around for dimes and pennies, by taking time to run them through actor simulations, you're taking away from time. They should have gotten some book learning stuff that that's what they're at school for. When they get out, school of hard knocks, they should expect that they're going to screw up cases. They should expect that they're going to not have the skills for this stuff. That's interesting. You talked about, you know, comp did you say competent, capable, and comfortable? Mm -hmm. Get your threes? Okay. Comfortable. I think there's an expectation and maybe it's just because that's how they did things. When you get out, how could you possibly be comfortable? You're going to be scared and you're not going to feel capable. And other veterinarians will kind of look at them and say, yeah, you're not. You're not capable. So push back on how come they can't just get out and figure it out the way everybody else did? That's a great question. And I think that, you know, I, I hear that a lot from other practitioners and, and those sorts of things. And I would say that. You still hear it today. Right now, you still hear practitioners are kind of okay. Oh, yeah. Even at conferences, when I go to present, I'll hear people say, oh, that's the communication person. That's so soft and fluffy. And that's not real science, right? Or my publications, <laughs> right? I, I publish a lot in JVME, the Journal of Vet Med Education. And it's taken a, a steep climb to really realize that this is a discipline that is science like anything else. And I would say that to those who say, why don't we just throw students out there and let them sink or swim the way we did? I think that some of my colleagues do share that perspective. And what I would say, I think we all kind of reach a, a proverbial fork in the road, right? And as an educator, I can take one of two paths. I can take the path that is draconian, that is, I was put through hell and back in vet school, if I'm honest, yeah. and say, you know what? 
I had no excuse absences. I wasn't allowed to be sick. If I was sick, I had to come take the test. There were no accommodations. That was the era where they said there was no such thing as a disability. Either you show up and do your work or not. I could go that path and kind of haze people and say, you know what? I was treated less than what I would like others to be treated and do that in the same way to my students, or I can take the other path, right? And the other path is not taking away the fact that, yeah, they are going to be scared. There are going to be things that we can't train them for in practice, but why can't I make it easier for them? And what I mean by easier is not taking away learning, but giving them tools for success. And so, for example, surgical skills. When I was in vet school, I, uh, in junior surgery, got a chance to do one cat spay, a quarter of a cat neuter, in my fourth year. <laughs> yes, a true quarter, which sounds ridiculous. I got to incise over one one of the testicles in the scrotal sac. Is it because you were splitting up the procedure among students? That's right. Exactly. Okay. Half of a dog neuter and maybe three quarters or one of a dog spay. And I may have gotten the numbers slightly off, but that was it. Right. And then I went into practice and I was in a very busy practice. And that practice required me to now do 40 spay neuters in one day. Holy criminy. It was really painful for me. It was painful for my team, the anesthesiologist. Things took me three to eight times as long. We had really long days. I had a 20-hour surgery day because I just wasn't done. And yes, I could put a student through that, but what did it actually achieve? Yes, at the end of the day, I did my procedures, but why can't we do more? And so we can actually backfill skills and we can actually in our clinical skills lab teach all the suturing skills that they need. I can buy models from companies that actually simulate the organs that you're going to take out of the abdomen for a spay or that you're going to take out of a scrotum for a castration. These models do bleed. I can teach students how to ligate things. And so I can troubleshoot some of the things they're going to face so that when they do get to surgery, it doesn't take three hours to do a cat castration. And so I would say that's the benefit. And it's a benefit. It's not that we're just making life easier for the students. It's making it realistic and helping them. And my hope is actually that then when they get into practice, they are more ready. Now, they're not ever going to be perfectly ready, as you said, but they're going to have the ability to not take 20 hours to do a surgical day. So they're going to hit the ground running Whereas my first job contract was 16 months and I was told that it was 16 months instead of 12 months because I was told that for the first four months I was considered useless. I didn't contribute (laughs) anything, right? And it took four months for them to teach me what I needed to know. So how wonderful would it be if we can deliver students that actually can be fully fledged, you know, contributors to a practice? And then you mentioned something about in your earlier part of the question about taking away time from book work, I think. So I did want to ask about that because another pushback, I know whenever they talk about changing the veterinary medical education in schools, there is pushback often, sometimes from administrators and often from faculty who say, 
they're defending their turf. So every veterinary school has a bunch of faculty and they all have specialties. And so if you want to rejigger that curriculum, you're taking time away from some professors and giving it to other professors or new professors. So that's always a painful process. So their argument is, look, you can't cut this. This is essential. Everyone says what they're doing is essential. <laughs> and that means they can't cut any time and they can't move the things around. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard that and I experienced that at some of the places where I have worked. There's an easy answer and then the real life answer. <laughs> okay. The easy answer for me is I'm really fortunate. I'm at a new school. I've been on the ground level. I'm founding faculty once again. And that means the curriculum's not set. And so from day one, actually, before the students arrived, so pre-day one, we actually could build out what we needed. And we had long discussions around roundtables with the founding faculty of this is the topic. This is theriogenology or reproductive science. What are we going to say is essential? What is kind of nice to have? And what do we not do or we, we don't put in the preclinical curriculum? And so we got the flexibility that most of my educator colleagues don't have because we have that new program. So I accept that I'm in a very fortunate, lucky position. Yeah, that's not fair. You got the video game cheat code. That's not fair. <laughs> so let's talk about everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I just say everybody else, though, can learn from certain things, which is education is moving away from some of the traditional bookwork didactic approach. And so as we look at adult learning theory, what we found is that you learn very little from sitting through a 60-minute presentation. I don't have the stats in front of me, and I'm not one of the core researchers that looked into it, but Essentially, talking at somebody translates into very little that is remembered, recalled, yeah. and put to good use. And so if I look back on my time at Cornell, spending 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. in lectures, I really didn't learn anything. And when I was studying, I just literally rewrote notes and just studied and stared and repeated the same facts over and over again. So I lacked the critical thinking. And so what some of the newer schools are doing that some of the traditional schools are picking up on that can't reconfigure the whole curriculum, but they can right. look at individual courses. They're actually taking time away from the rote memorization. And now they're doing case vignettes. So instead of me lecturing at you about prostate cancer or testicular tumors for five hours, I now can give you some pre-work where the students can read on their own or watch a video or however you want to deliver that a little bit of homework ahead of time so that they have kind of the basic, right? Maybe I give them a segment from my textbook on physical exam and how to feel for testicular tumors. Now they come in and now in class, they have an active learning session. So maybe now they have a case and they meet on paper, a specific patient of a specific signalment. And now we learn what questions to ask the owner. And then we tell them what they found on physical exam. And now they have to work through, well, what are they going to do to figure out what type of tumor it is? And that actually has been proven in different disciplines, primarily human healthcare, to be of much greater value. And it takes more time to teach a smaller amount of material. But by doing that, you've built in the critical thinking that then if they see something related that they haven't, per se, talked about in class they can actually work through the case and do it on their own. So we don't have to give them everything in entire medicine. It's more about showing them where to look for resources because things change all the time. 
what I was told as reasons why to neuter a dog and how to say that to a client, the rationale of what I was told were the reasons why we needed to do it have changed. Not everything I was shared was accurate then. And so to me, it's less about let's memorize these 1800 pages and more, where do you look for information? How do you evaluate the scientific literature? What are you going to do when a client says, hey, I want to give this supplement? Those are how we, we can really help our students, I think. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. If you came out of school at a time when they figured the general boss figured these new veterinarians are useless and we're going to teach them how to do things this first time, it's going to be stressful. Everyone's going to have trouble with this. I think there's that handoff. And now if you're talking about you have a day one ready doctor, I want to ask kind of two questions around that. One is, do you think that creates an expectation for managers and leaders, practice owners, practice managers who hire these people? that they are ready to hit the ground running and they're not going to need a whole lot of quote unquote handholding and mentorship. And I have a second part to that, which is if that handoff is actually, if you worry about that handoff. So the first question is kind of these managers and leaders, can they expect these people won't need quote unquote handholding? What is your hope there? And then do you worry about that handoff? What I would say is I would expect them to see graduates that can come in, that can actually meet a client, greet a client, introduce themselves appropriately, take a comprehensive case history, and perform the best physical exam they can. And those are bread and butter skills. And it was studied in human healthcare and has been studied in veterinary healthcare. But it's thought that up to 75% of diagnoses can be made based on the history and physical exam alone. When I graduated, I really couldn't take a history on my own. And I really didn't feel comfortable with the physical exam. And so every single appointment, if I was seeing two an hour or four an hour, I had to bring someone else into the room or I had to take the pet into the back. And so what I would say to these managers and directors of clinics, employers, you can expect a graduate who can work through a consultation hour, who can work through an exam. They may have questions on individual cases, but I don't see them having to have the handholding of needing to bring every patient and run it by you. They can work through the rabies vaccination case, the itchy skin case, the squinty eye case, you know, those sorts of things, and then come to you for help when needed. I think that as employers, 
what does it change? I think what it changes for them is really having to have a conversation with that student about where are you at? What can you do? What can't you do? What have you not been exposed to? What do you not feel comfortable with? And I think, sadly, that's a conversation that should have been had 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Sure. I never had that, right? I just was thrown in. They just assumed you could do everything. I think we need to be having those conversations because I have them with students all the time. Students come with different experiences and graduates will too. Every college is slightly different. And so I think the burden falls upon the employer to say, all right, show me what you can do, work through something. And then let me have my door available so that you know what we need to help you with. Did you just graduate your first group or are they coming? No, they started August 2020. So our first class is a three-year program. They graduate in 2023. But I worked through Midwestern's class. And so I, I got to see them graduate. And they, by the time they entered their fourth clinical year, so a year before yeah. graduation, they could walk circles around where I was at when I graduated. What was the handoff like for them? So in your anecdotal experiences, talking to your students who graduated out from that program, did they have these conversations or did they have to initiate these conversations with bosses or potential mentors or other you know, managers and other people in the practices they work? What was happening with that? Great question. I would say that they often had the conversations and the reason was it was prompted by employers who were maybe skeptical of the program. Okay. So because it was a new program, they were like, hmm, well, what are you learning? What did you discover? <laughs> and the employers then called me back because they, in many cases, were blown away by the responses. So for example, I told you how many Spain neuters I did when I graduated. Right. That's pretty typical of a lot of the schools still today. When my students from Midwestern graduated, they would go out and say, you know, and if the boss said, well, how many Spain neuters have you done on your own? They'd say 40 to 50. Some said 60 to 70. And that's astronomical, right? So then the employer would call me back and say, candidate X, you know, said that, da, 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 da. That sounds outrageous. Is that right? And I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Like here, you know, these are the logs and this is how many they do. And I think it took a year or two, even three for people to start to say, wow, you know, these Midwestern graduates are sharp and to trust in that. The client communication skills is the biggest thing that I heard back from employers. They said, wow, this student can actually have a conversation with the client this student can diffuse client issues. And so nowadays, I think there's more trust in that program. But I would foresee that when our graduates graduate in 2023, they're probably going to get similar questions. You know, what was your program like? You didn't have lecture all the time. How did that do for you? What do you know? You know, what are your gaps? And I think that that's a reasonable question. You know, if I was an employer, I would want to know what the curriculum was as well. But I have really immense faith in how we've built it. And I think part of that stems from the fact that I've lived it before. Our curriculum here at the U of A is different than Midwestern, but there's some harmony in key areas that I think led to the success of those students. Is there any, either by school selection or people's self-selection in the schools they go to, especially as admissions used to be, you know, X amount of applicants for every spot at a veterinary school, and that's crept down into the single digits and now crept down really how many people want to get into veterinary school? If you can get through the hurdles, there's so many schools now, you can probably go to A 
And, and you're saying no, it, <laughs> it's still very difficult to get into a U.S. accredited veterinary school if you go through all the hurdles, graduate yes. with things. So if you think about human health care, there's hundreds of medical yeah. schools, hundreds. And we have in the 30s. And so, no, there are still many applicants per seat that is being filled. And so it is harder to get into veterinary school than it is human health care. It is for sure, but it is easier than it used to be to get into a veterinary school. I'd say yes and no. I think that the problem is it's harder in the sense of there are more applicants every year. And those applicants have immense wealth of experiences that they bring. And the amount of experiences on paper that I see makes what we applied with look really pretty grim. <laughs> like. <laughs> the amount of what people have researched and some people have done research sure they've been published they've been to different countries on different you know missions so i think that the amount of talent out there is astronomical and that's what you're competing against i think what makes it a fairer process and I, i'd rather use the word fairer than easy because i feel like easy negates the amount of effort they have to do to get here, which is immense. Fair in the sense that many of the newer programs are taking a more holistic approach. And so what I really like about our admissions process is it tries to look at the whole individual. And that's very different than when I say applied. And when I applied to most vet schools, it was you either have this GPA or you don't. And if you don't have this GPA, your application goes in the trash. No one reads it. No one looks at it. You have no shot. The same was true for animal experience hours, how many hours you needed in order to get into vet school. And I think I had over 5,000. And I was in the fortunate, privileged group that did not yeah. need a summer job that could work for free and shadow right. and right. had parents that would drop me off because I didn't have my own car. But I had the advantage of those hours. But many people I knew never got into vet school because they had to work. They couldn't afford that. And so today there's a lot of variety in GPA ranges rather than a cutoff. Not all schools require the GRE because we're realizing that it's not the best test. It, it does not help to be inclusive um, in terms of what it's actually testing for in the audience. We have much broader and fewer hours of requirement many students come in and have not actually worked in a clinic. And so I think what that helps to do is round out and broaden the field of who this career could be an option for. And so that's the direction that I'm really encouraged by. The individuals that I get to meet are some of the most amazing people I've ever known. And it's not because they have a 4.0. It's because we've actually opened the gates to people who deserve to be here, who have a place here. So you kind of led me to my second question and kind of maybe already answered it. I wondered about if the students who select your school to try to get into or you in your selection process are selecting a different kind of pool than might have been previous, a previous pool where you're talking about here are the absolute requirements and that's who we look for. And if you don't cut over this line, but when you're talking about these soft skills and communication, I think typically we used to hear again, this idea that uh, veterinarian science minded veterinarians, the cliche is that, oh, they like animals more than people. Are you selecting for people who actually maybe have a little more of those soft skills, have a little more of that bent 
toward communication from the get-go at, at the application process? Yeah, I would say we are looking for definitely more well-rounded, and I know that that's been overused, but I, I truly mean <laughs> sure. people who are people who have lived lives. Many of them, this is their second or even third career. Many of them don't have veterinary experience, but maybe they worked as a bartender and have thousands of hours logged and they have to work with people. So as you said, working with the public, the environment, learning about all of those sorts of things. Many have worked in restaurants or, you know, with Verizon or companies that have customer service. Many have spoken about life challenges or why they're coming back to veterinary medicine, why they couldn't go for it the first time around, you know, life issues, um, life changes, trajectories. And I think that what encourages me is that we're no longer just going after the gunners. And I say that as a gunner myself, right? I, I like, <laughs> Tell me who, the, who are the gunners? Are these the people who are like hyper monofocused? Yeah, like on this I was the thing? one that was okay. like, I am going to sit here and I will study all night and I will get a 4.0 because at that time it was like, if you want to get to Cornell vet school, it was 4.0 in this many hours. And, you know, I checked all the boxes I had to. And yeah. That was it. My life was defined as I will be a veterinarian. And there's nothing to say that there's something. I don't want to say that that's wrong, right? There are still students I meet who are wonderful people who will be wonderful vets. But I lacked a lot of the balance. And I I never had in those days a chance to define me as anyone but me, the scientist, me, the vet. And what I love so much about our students is if you ask them who they are, and we have exercises to go through personal and professional identities and professional skills, what they share about who they are, where they've come from, how they've grown, what led them to this. They're the people you want to sit with and absorb because there's just this wisdom there that I lacked. And I lacked because I was that racehorse that had the little blinders on. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, don't talk to me about the party. I'm not going to that soccer right. bed. I'm not doing whatever. And I'm coming around now late in life to realize I can have other passions and still love what I do as a profession. But now I've broadened who I am, right? And I have extracurricular activities, but my students have taught me that because they come with those pre-built in. And I think that will hopefully help them as they move into practice because they have better boundaries than I ever did. And I think that they will be able to take care of themselves better and to say no to certain things and to actually know they have a voice. Whereas I was just, you tell me jump and I say, yeah, sure, how high. I lived in perpetual fear of never being good enough, never doing enough. And many of these students have already worked through failures and what it's like to pick themselves back up and overcome that. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know... I appreciate you.